Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. We're here today with David Burkus. David wrote the recent book, Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual. And uh, we're going to explore the a number of new ideas that are coming out in business that David has researched and, and looks into. David, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Let's start with, with the beginning, actually. I mean, you make this sort of simple and convincing case for why we need to be open to changing the traditional management systems. Can you share that case? Yeah, yeah. let's start. In the, it, so in the beginning, there was, now, I mean, literally in the beginning, if we think about management, you know, we forget that it was an invention. We, we forget that while, while ideas around leadership, et cetera, have been around for a long time, the actual sort of scientific approach towards management only started really about 100 years ago. And it, it started, uh, at least in the United States, as far as we know, the, the real founder of management science was a guy named Frederick Taylor. Uh, and Taylor had Taylor was actually a really interesting guy with kind of a weird past. He got accepted into Harvard, but decided not to go and ended up being a, a foreman at a factory while he did night school. And one of the things he really brought to that factory mentality was the need at the time factories were groups of sort of individual workmen who had gone through the apprentice guild system that we all kind of and everybody had their own way of doing things. And he really had this question of like, well, is there a is there a best way and is there a way that we can get everybody coordinated together where they get up to speed quicker and they can actually increase productivity uh, and increase profitability? And, and really, Taylor kind of gets a bad rap because one of the other things he wanted was to increase their own revenue in their pocket. Like he saw that people, if we paid them hourly, were going to naturally just do as little work as they could get away with and not be fired. Um, so he instituted a piece rate system where the people who really put in the effort could actually make more money. So he saw this as a as a blessing to those people. The the downside of a lot of Taylor's ideas was that he also thought that these people shouldn't be responsible for thinking. You know, that we had two classes of people now, labor and management. And management's job was to think, was to time out the motions, was to figure out exactly what actions everybody should do and then assemble them in a system that allowed for maximum productivity. And all labor had to do was shut their mind off and use their body. And if that sounds outdated, it's because it is. We we took a lot of Taylor's ideas and we drug them with us from the factory to the office. And no surprise, we found they're not necessarily working. So where I really pick up in under new management is with the, well, let's talk about what's working now. The nature of our work has changed. Most of us don't work in factories anymore. And, and even if they did, they're so complicated and interdependent. I don't think Taylor would even recognize them. So the 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 foundation, the bedrock that most management theory was written on is written for an era that most of us aren't working in, which means we kind of need to start from the beginning again and rewrite. And to go to the punchline, in effect, what you're suggesting or what you're seeing out there is this shift from the Taylorism, which is kind of a control-based methodology, management methodology, to what what I see, and I'm actually asking you about this, what I see underlying 
a lot of these practices is the necessity for trust, is for management to be able to look at everyone else in the organization and say, I trust you. And I trust you might mean you choose your own vacations. I'm not going to track that. I trust you might mean I'm going to be completely transparent with all the salaries and and explain why and trust that that's not going to throw you. Trust can mean a number of different things, but it seems like underlying this new management shift is a requirement for a very different level of trust. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I it's interesting. We we for a long time talked about trust and as this wonderful, nice thing to have. And you know, we have trust falls that are parodied throughout all sorts of fun movies and TV shows about workplace life. Where, where I come in is I think in 2016, trust is really our only option. The nature of work has changed so much. It, it used to be that that Taylor with his stopwatch and his ledger and his pencil could observe people working and figure out the best way for them to do the work. But now so much of the work that we're asking people to do is so creative and so knowledge based that the frontline worker really is the person who knows how to do the job the best. And so management turns to having no other choice but to trust them, having no other choice but to say, you know, you knew you know how to do your job best. And my job is to get you what you need in order to do that work. I mean, and also make sure that you don't do anything unethical or illegal, but primarily it moves from a. Uh, a role where we command and control to a role where we support because our only option in this workplace and the type of work we're doing now is to trust. So let's go into some of the specifics about that. Uh, you know, when you, when you trust people, for example, to, to choose their own vacations, to decide how much vacation time that, that the idea that you talk about in the book that you're seeing happen. And I should say that all of the ideas that you share are ideas that are already in practice. So it's not you theoretically saying, oh, this would be a great idea, but you're looking at what's going on in, in, the, in various industries and various companies and saying they are trying this and it's working. And, and so let's just jump on one of them, which is uh, not ordaining specific uh, levels of vacation or vacation time, but saying you take time when you need it and uh, and, you know, we don't tell you exactly when you have to work. We don't tell you exactly when you take off. You just have to get the work done that you need to get done. Yeah. And, and that's I mean, some people call that unlimited vacation. I think the, the better term for it is a is a no vacation policy policy. Right. So we our policy is we don't have a policy. And the, the reason for that, I mean, it, it starts with that trust piece. Again, we, we're in a system now where the, the needs of the workplace, the needs of the workers demand that we're, we're not really tracking. Did you get in at eight or nine? Did you stay till five? Did you only take an hour for lunch? And really, I mean, the reality is a lot of times people mix work and vacation together. A lot of modern workers now still know that they're going to be working on some projects, even if they're traveling with their family or, or what have you. And so it really stemmed from this idea that if we're not tracking that stuff, why are we still nickel and diming tracking the the perfect vacation policy and really i mean the vacation policy if you think about it is something that came from that factory mentality that factory world if you're trying to keep a factory running 24 7 then you know you've got you know two to three shifts and you need all of those shifts staffed which means you have to hire x number of workers and you got to make sure that people don't take their vacations at the same time so that or, or too much of it so that you can keep the factory running on a, on as minimal staff as possible we don't work in that environment anymore Although some, people, some would oh, so argue that some would argue that we do right that that when I look at organizations, 
I, I certainly within my organization and others, you know, you still need to know who's going to be out when, because if everybody's out at the same time, I mean, the, the, you know, the obvious example is if you're in accounting, everybody can't take off, you know, the two weeks at the year end or two weeks at on April, you know, last week of April, but, but more broadly than that, in general, we still need coverage. We still need to coordinate, don't we? Yeah, and well, it's interesting you use the word coordinate, and that's that's exactly what I found. One of the one of the ways that I was researching this book was I demanded that every idea and every policy had to work not just in Silicon Valley, but had to work in like more real jobs. And I found a hospital in Windsor, Ontario, actually, where the entire nurses system runs on unlimited vacation. And what's interesting is they had to coordinate and collaborate better as a team to figure out when people would be there. And the the mentality that shift there was just amazing from it literally shifted from people going, oh, well, this is our pinch or, you know, our crunch time of the year or what have you. And so and so decided to take vacation to you know, it wasn't that people were harming you by taking vacation anymore. It was everybody gets a turn. And we've got to figure out how to p- parcel this outright. And it really was a, a now kind of a team effort so that vacation was seen as something nobody had angst for you anymore for disappearing on because it was all collaborated together. That's that's really that key is that trust and collaboration. Did you find resentments grow with some people looking at others who take more vacation and thinking, you know, they're getting away with it or they're not treating this policy with the kind of respect that I am? And did it did it create any of those kinds of tensions? You know, a lot of the pushback that you get is that and the and the idea that uh, people just aren't going to take a lot of vacation. And a lot of that is is hypothetical. You know, what you find is that the average number of days of vacation that people take is around the same, but the bell curve kind of widens. So people, some people take more, some people take less. But most of the time you're, you're implementing this in a culture where there really is an understanding and appreciation that everybody's in different stances in their life. You know, I've, I have two really young kids. They're four and two. And so the, uh, the flexibility that I need and the, the kind of time off that I need is going to be very different than when they're both in college and I can give more of that time or when I didn't have any children, right? So different stages of people's lives and different work meet those different demands. And I think overall, there's an appreciation that this new system allows that to happen instead of trying to create, I mean, most vacation policies are well-meaning, but they're trying to create something that works for everybody. And we have so many different type of people in the workforce now and so many different roles that they play outside of their job that you really can't create a one-size-fits-all policy anymore. And so you have a one-size-fits-one and it's a different policy for every person. So I know a leader in an organization who looks at this and says, great idea, and actually instituted it in effect. Uh, You know, it's a slightly different situation. What he instituted was flex time in his company. And he basically said, as long as you're doing your work, I don't care whether you're here. But then he needed someone and he looked up and he says, you know, where's Jane? And Jane's, well, Jane's working from home and he gets frustrated and he goes, "I, I need to talk to her. I need to have it. Well, you could call her. Well, I need to have a meeting with her. And, and I guess my question is, you know, how do we manage this transition? How do we help people who are really used to, who, who like the idea and are really used to seeing people around and connecting with people in that particular way? So they like the idea, but they struggle with the execution. They're, in effect, having to learn to work differently and learn to trust. And in many cases, they're the leaders of the organization. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. This came to light a lot uh, as I was writing the book was also when Yahoo had that big announcement that the work from home policy was going away and everybody had to be back in the headquarters, et cetera. And really, I think this is an issue that comes down to, to culture, both of the organization and of the people in it and what they can kind of tolerate. I mean, just like there's no that's why I like to call it a no vacation policy policy instead of unlimited vacation, because the, the policy is not unlimited. The policy is we're going to let each individual person kind of come up with between them and their team and their manager what works best for them. And I think the same thing applies to uh, different organizations. So I've seen some implement it and it honestly didn't work because the culture of trust wasn't there. I've seen others implement it with kind of specifics like you joked about accounting, but it's, it is that idea of like, OK, it's unlimited vacation except during these times. A lot of companies have to figure out when it comes to flex time, which is a little bit different because it's around, you know, where and when can you work, not vacation. A lot of them have to figure out what works for them. Some of them will have core hours and then other ones. I mean, Amazon is actually experimenting with this as we speak with the the four day work week for most people that sets. OK, you're going to be here during these hours. But then beyond that, we don't necessarily care. I, I wish, you know, this, and this is where, you know, my job is to connect what's working with the social science behind why it's working and not advocate for a specific model. I wish I could be that consultant with like the four box model and the charts and I'll charge you 50 grand to implement it in your company type thing. Um, but A, that's not my role. And B, I'm not really convinced that there is a one thing that works across every single company policy, whether it's it's for va- flex time or for vacation. It kind of got to see what your culture and what your people can tolerate. So I really liked that element of the book, and and you talk about it uh, in terms of kind of the anti best practice, right? I mean, I don't think you use that language, but you you don't like best practices, and I've always felt this, so I feel exactly the way you do. That every situation is different, that the context in which you're operating in is critical, and if you try to take one. Uh, policy, one idea from one company and bring it into yours, there's as much of a chance it's going to fail and succeed because there's a million different variables related to your company. My question, though, as I read the book is that I wonder um, whether you're also proposing now these as kind of best practices, that how do you talk about these and not say these are the new best practices? Yeah. And, and actually, one of the early working titles for the book was The Worst Best Practices, Right. Because it was this idea that these look so terrible compared to best practices, but they actually work. But I don't know that anybody buys a book called The Worst Best Practices. So we did away with it. You know, one of the things I'm careful to do in in each of like I said earlier, I'm trying to make sure it doesn't just work in Silicon Valley. It works somewhere else is a lot of them. I I look at the, the core principle and the social science behind why it works, but then talk about some other ideas that meet that same core principle, but look in policies that are different. And I I look at it as like a continuum, right? So on the one hand, you have like the unlimited vacation. On the other hand, you have companies that found that for their people, paid, paid vacation works better. In other words, like we'll, we'll give you a bonus if you actually hit all of your vacation because they're trying to force that rest. For some organizations, I was actually fascinated to see that TED, the the you know big nonprofit that runs the conferences and everybody watches the TED Talks, they have two weeks a year where they just shut down the whole office. So, you know, it's not, it's not I can't find such and such person because they're not on vacation. Everybody's gone, right? So, and, and it, again, it keeps in line with the policy behind or the 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 theory and the social science behind why the policy works. But I look at it much more of as a range than anything else. Like salary transparency is probably the best example. So you can go from everyone and even customers knowing to what employee makes to just not preventing employees from sharing that salary information. There's a whole continuum of transparency you can pick at. And it's on leadership to figure out where in that continuum it comes down. 
You know, the salary transparency was very interesting to me too because I know a company, and this was back in the late '90s when the internet boom was was you know keeping everybody very excited, and um, and the it was a mistake. The and this was also, by the way, when it was very very hard to bring new people in because the um, the the economics were changing so fast that if I was bringing a programmer in uh, in January and another one in March, I had to pay the other one in March, you know, twenty percent more in order to be able to attract him because it was a very very tight labor market, and so the people who had been there the longest were getting paid less than the people who were there shorter because you needed to spend more money in order to attract them. And the head of HR of this company, who was subsequently fired immediately, uh, <laughs> sent out an email um, to everybody in the organization telling them how many vacation days everybody had left, right, to, in order to kind of encourage people to take their vacation. But instead of sending out emails, he sent out salaries. So hmm. in one fell swoop, everybody saw the salaries of everyone else and in one day, there was 30% turnover in this company, mm. right? Because mm. people couldn't stomach what looked like very, very unfair policies. And yeah. it's, it's, I think, very – you talk about some ways of implementing this, but I wanted you maybe to speak to that. Yeah. So, so first of all, if you're not using a, a uniform system and a fair system that you can point to for how you're determining your salaries, then by no, by by gosh, do not make salaries transparent. And that's because you're going to see that. And that's a real rule of trust, right? Which is the rule of trust right. is if you're going to rely on trust, you have to make sure that you're very very thoughtful about the fairness of the system that you're creating. Right. And and my problem, my pushback with that particular organization is is why weren't, as you're increasing salaries by labor de labor market demands, why are you not increasing the salaries of the people you already hired? Not just from a standpoint of fairness, but from a standpoint of, of turnover, right? If that's what the market is demanding, then that's probably what you're going to have to pay just to keep them because they're probably looking to jump somewhere else to get that jump and pay too. So, so it starts with that idea of we can point to a uniform system that we use to determine salaries for everybody. And a lot of companies, the level of transparency is just saying, here's how we calculate it. We're not going to tell you what everyone makes. I guess you could plug it in if you can figure out all the variables, but we're able to say, here's how we decide. And so now we can show, look, we can have a conversation about whether or not this is fair, but this is the uniform standard we're applying to everybody so that you know it is fair and you can trust us that we have your best interests in, in, in mind. What feels very important about that and important to mention is that if you are going to go to a system like this, which is transparent, or even as an individual, if you're choosing to be transparent, it requires, and I think this is an upside of that, it requires that you pause and think through, am I being fair? Am I being legitimate? Am I doing things that I'm you know, completely fine with everybody seeing and understanding? And it, it, you have to hold yourself to a higher standard than you might otherwise if you were relying on secrecy. And that doesn't mean that the people who are relying on secrecy, and, and that sounds nefarious, but it doesn't mean that they're bad people or they're trying to fool people. But we could get lazy and a little sloppy mm -hmm. and we can kind of say, well, you know, I don't want to bring those other people up because they don't know they're getting paid less. And that's another couple hundred thousand dollars to our bottom line. And they agreed. I could convince myself. I could say they agreed to those salaries. You right. can always, you know, you can always convince yourself and rationalize the, the acts that you're doing because the truth is they're gray lines that, you know, it's, it's not inappropriate to say I've hired you at $50,000 
and I'm not going to increase your salary every two months just because the market's changing. Nobody really expects that. But if we're going to go to transparency, we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard and say, you know what, even though I don't have to do it, I'm going to be really open and trustworthy. And in order to do that, I'm going to raise everybody's salaries, which is going to cost the company a lot of money. And that's a big commitment for the organization to make for the sake of transparency. True. And, and I believe it's one where the, the ROI is definitely there. Because again, if you're, you actually use the perfect word to describe it, lazy, right? I, I believe, I mean, it's 2016. I don't believe that there are any HR leaders or CEOs out there that are deliberately trying to discriminate against different uh, employees or to be deliberately unfair to employees. I just think secrecy, it's easier to not deal with the issues as they come about. So you're exactly right. You do have to hold yourself to a higher standard. The payoff that I've seen in looking at these companies, and this is everything from technology companies to companies like Whole Foods and, and workers that we would consider sort of low skilled, you know, they're working in a supermarket workers, actually all the way up through the whole company. So everybody's transparent. So it runs the whole gamut of, of um, types of employees, et cetera that are, again, holding themselves to that higher standard and keeping it. I think there's a payoff. You get better uh, engaged employees. Over time, you get better employees. There's some evidence that shows that um, especially talented women in minority groups are drawn to transparent companies because they know this is a place that's going to treat me fairly no matter what. I can trust them. So you get a better quality employee. And, and the ROI is definitely there. I, I'll be the first to tell you it, it takes a lot of effort. And if you're not willing to do that, then please don't go to transparency. But I hope that we can also convince you that you should do that. And especially to attract top talent, you need to do that. Well, and I think, you know, this, the, you're not saying this, but I, it feels important to me, which is that it's a policy that ends up letting you sleep better at night. That in fact, mm -hmm. that you're, you know, not only is it right, you know, in terms of women and minorities, but when you're holding something secret, even if it feels legitimate, there's energy that goes into not sharing it with people, being worried about mm -hmm. what happens if people find out, recognizing that if it did come out, it wouldn't look great. And, and even though you can legitimately uh, claim that and, and kind of legitimately uh, continue a policy that's not necessarily transparent, there's something relieving about saying, I I'm going to run this in a way that's completely above board and completely beyond reproach, and that that will pay off. That's exactly right. And, and actually, once you make the switch, it's actually easier to stay transparent because any conversation shift from, oh, this is so unfair, Tom gets paid more than Steve, and they're equally competent employees. Well, now there's no animosity between Tom and Steve. Now they're having a conversation about what in the system allowed that to happen, and should we change it? I mean, I'll give you an example. It happened after we published the book, but um, Buffer is one of the companies or technology company that we profile about transparency. And they actually have the highest level. They share their salaries with customers and it's, it's posted on the internet for all to see, which is, I mean, honestly, a, a level of transparency most organizations I don't think maybe even want to get to, and that's okay. Um, but interestingly enough, there was kind of a hit job piece in, I, I, I don't want to say which magazine because I don't actually remember and I don't want to unfairly implicate him, but it, the, the headline read, Buffer has salary transparency and still can't solve their wage gap problem. Right. And then you read the article and what it actually is, is Buffer went to salary transparency. They used this formula. They found out that one of the ways they determine pay scale is experience. Experience was judged as one to three years, three to five years, five to eight years, et cetera. And what they found was that men who had five years of experience were more likely to say they had five to eight than women who would say they have three to five. 
And so Buffer is taking steps to mitigate that so that everybody's fair. So the real headline should read, Buffer has salary transparency, it points out a wage gap, and now they can take proactive steps to fix it, which is the real sort of meat of the article is that this system actually makes salaries fairer over time because more people are involved in helping figure out what is the best system to use. You make an interesting point, which I think um, gives people pause before they make any of these kinds of changes. And that is the challenge in going back, right? So we're operating in a certain way. And when we suddenly make everything transparent, it's very hard to say, okay, you know what? That experiment didn't work. So we're going to go back to not transparent. And I could think of, you know, a number of different ways, you know, when you kill the performance review, which I'm a proponent of, it's very hard to bring it back if you find that it's not working effectively. So how do you help people through that hump, which is, I think, a very real hump, of resistance to change because of the difficulty of changing back. Yeah, so so this is again where I see these as steps in a continuum because it's they're smaller steps at that point. You know, to go from zero to everybody knows what everybody gets paid, that's a big jump. Or to go from, you know, no annual or go from per annual performance review solely documented on your, in your permanent file to now we're just going to do away with the whole thing. Mm, that's kind of hard. You know what what I advocate for it, it to use the performance evaluation is to take steps towards it. So you have your annual review. I actually love what Adobe does with their check-in system. So that's an informal conversation can be, um, you know, as frequent as once a month or once a week, as short as 10 minutes. All it has to do is talk about three things in the same conversation, expectations, feedback, and growth and development. And what I usually advocate for when I work with companies now is don't eliminate one and institute the other. Add check-ins, get people trained on check-ins. And then over time, as that is getting up to speed, if you have a year or two where there's also an annual review, A, it's not going to be a surprise to anyone, but B, you're going to be able to see, okay, well, if we do away with the annual thing now, our check-ins enough to sustain us? And a lot of companies I see, and especially highly regulated industries, they still want some permanent documentation, and that's fine, but their life is still going to be better by having these check-in conversations much more frequently than just trusting an annual review with an HR rep to do that. You know, what I find also is, and I haven't done this research, but I imagine you know, it depends on who HR reports into. So, you know, there's mm. there's companies where HR reports into the CEO, there's companies where HR reports into the CFO, and there's companies where HR reports into legal. And I imagine if HR is reporting into legal, it's much harder to give away, uh, to give up some of that paperwork than if the HR is, uh, you know, reporting to the CEO. You know, the, the irony there, I mean, yeah, you're exactly right on performance evaluations. The irony there is that sometimes that can steer people astray. So to jump back to transparency, right, there are some legal scholars who read the uh, National Labor Relations Act as essentially advocating for transparency and making anything that makes it uh, less transparent, uh, you know, possibly illegal in the United States. So again, not legal advice, not a lawyer telling you what different other legal scholars say, but Interesting, because what you find is that the more um, paperwork oriented, make sure everything, every box is checked, people are more likely to advocate for the transparency piece because they're fearing a freak out and a lawsuit and all that sort of stuff, all the while possibly stumbling into one on the other side, right? So so you're right. It, it's interesting to see how different it, – it's not to say that every practice in the book works only if HR is going right to the CEO. Everyone kind of works differently depending on who they report to. Now, now that said, I still advocate – that HR have that seat at the table, especially when it comes to things like performance reviews, because those feed into succession planning and that feeds into the next generation of leadership. 
To what extent do you think you can do some of these things unilaterally? I'm, I'm thinking about the, the story you tell, Daimler's vacation policy, email policy, which I really loved, which is if you're on vacation, every email that gets sent to you gets deleted. And you just have an email responder saying, if you've emailed this person, it's not going to get to them. If you want them, you got to email them again when they come back on vacation. That might be something that the organization doesn't institute, but you think as an individual, I would love to do that. I would love to come back <laughs> after vacation and not look at 500 emails in my, in my email account. Have you seen instances where individuals could you know, effectively, diplomatically do some of these things without the organization making it a policy? Yes. Yeah, so it really varies on the um, on the company and on the particular practice. Email is actually one where I think you really can. You might not be able to do the Daimler system where it's all automatic, but you really could have you know, the best term to describe it is as a as a, a middle manager or front frontline manager. You can create a pocket of excellence where you're starting to, to play around with these ideas. Email is a great example, because what I what I actually think is the best place to start on email is just having a conversation about what are the ways it helps what are the ways it hurts? Let's eliminate the ways that it's hurting. And if that's vacation, awesome. I, I suspect for most people, if you really had to weigh between the Daimler unlimited vacation policy and the Volkswagen uh, and other companies are doing this now too of the, we're just, we're going to shut off the email servers at night. So we're not bugging you. I think most people would actually take that. I'll, I'll deal with the influx of emails when I get back from vacation. But what I want is a night with my family and loved ones, uh, friends, et cetera. So that, you know, it, it, but it, again, it depends on the, the company and the, the manager. But I do think some of these are, especially the ones that have nothing to do with legal circumstances, it's possible to start it in your, you know, little pocket of excellence. And hopefully it grows from there. You know, I'm just, I'm just sort of smiling because I'm thinking, you know, like at a certain point, if you create a new email policy for your pocket or yourself that says, you know, don't email me when I'm not here. And then you jump into the unlimited vacation policy. So you're on vacation. <laughs> like at a certain point, you're just no longer working. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but I think like, but I think what you're saying, which is, is really important and a lesson, which is that, you know, people are trustworthy that ultimately you will have some people who abuse it. That's by definition going to happen. But for the most part, people are reasonable and people are trustworthy. And in some ways, if you don't trust people, it seems like, a, and you want to trust people, it seems like a good practice is to start opening up some of these you know, mm -hmm. trusting policies and then letting people fulfill the expectation that they can actually be trusted. Yeah. And I think, you know, too, these are, and this is one of those things I didn't realize till the book was out and I was gauging the initial reactions. These are mostly policies of elimination. It's not about how do you add it on to your company. All, almost all of them came about from seeing the way we were doing business now as blocking employees' ability to do their best work. Now, whether that's because they're not given enough downtime like the email thing or whether that's because there's all sorts of animosity because nobody knows the, system, the pay system is fair, et cetera. Most of these practices came into being, not all, but most came into being by managers and senior leaders going, you know what, this is the way we've always done it, but I sense that it's actually blocking people's potential. What happens if we remove it? And so that's really the challenge. Whether you implement any of the 13 that are in this book or none of the 13, I think the big lesson for any individual manager to take back is what are the practices and procedures right now that are blocking my people's best work and how can I fight to eliminate those, whatever they may be, and you're going to end up with a better workplace if, again, if you can trust them to do their best work, which should have been a prerequisite for kind of hiring them and building that team anyway. Uh, a final question, David, is how – after all of this research, how 
have your findings and your writing and your thinking about this impacted your life personally? So how have you changed how you do things, if at all, based on what you've seen is happening out there in the market? Yeah. So I, um, I mean, personally, actually, I had a almost 180 degree turn on the salary transparency piece. When I started researching that, I was very much the like, this is private information, blah, 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 blah. And, and I, so the mentality with peace for me, that was a huge change. The biggest kind of individual thing to go back to the, the emails chapter and the idea of it being uh, much more of a cost than it is a benefit in most of our lives is in attempting to practice what I preached, I stumbled across a system where now I have, I don't know if I can show them to you, I don't know where they are, but um, now I have a system where I have a phone and I have an iPad and they have most of the same stuff on them except the iPad doesn't have anything that's work-related. And for me as an author, that includes social media because for me that's really actually more work-related other than I have one private, really hard-to-find Facebook account, but all of the other uh, social media accounts I count as part of my job as, as an author and thinker, et cetera. And when I get home or if I'm working from home, when I go upstairs to where kind of our home life is, I switch devices. So it's my way of doing the no email on uh, evenings and weekends thing is I literally have the device. It's actually all the way in our bathroom, which is on the other side of the house, so that if I wanted to check my email, like I still can and I can hear it if it rings and it's an emergency. But mostly it's that subtle reminder that there is a line between work and home life. And if I want to be my best at work, the first thing I should do is recognize that I need to be my best at home and resting and, and doing the reasons we work anyway, which is to have a better life to enjoy with our family, friends, loved ones, et cetera. David Burkus, the book is Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual. David, it's such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thanks so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Oh, thank you again so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.